All right, well, welcome to what is our next to the last sermon series, our sermon uh, session on our fall series of James. And uh, as the kids were leading us this morning, as the, as the band gets off the stage, I was just thinking about uh, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6. Uh, Jesus says, do not prevent the children from coming to me because the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. And uh, man, I was just kind of broken for a moment about my own worship and how we should never allow, uh, well, I shouldn't say never allow, we should not be satisfied with uh, the children's worship being greater than ours. Just a really great thing. Thanks for, thanks for doing that, and thanks for bringing your kids to be a part of this ministry. We are, we're, we're really proud of what God does through our, our kids' ministry and student ministry, and, and, and so I'm, I'm just real thankful that you guys uh, continue to support that and be a part of that. If you've got your Bible, go to James chapter 4. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna continue on. We've got this week and then next week, and then we'll wrap up uh, we'll wrap up James next week. And we've been looking at and going through uh, the book of James. And when we do this, uh, my prayer is that that not only will you learn to love the book that we're in, but you will also love to learn learn to love Scripture as well. Like as it has the whole aspect of Scripture, this holy, inspired, wonderfully compiled uh, revelation of God himself is not just another book that we have. It is, in every essence, the key to life and living. It's the foundation of our knowledge and understanding of who God is. And when we read it, uh, it engages the Holy Spirit in our life. And, and most of you guys understand this. We believe that Scripture is divinely inspired, right? We believe in the plenary uh, divine inspiration of God, which means every single word is inspired. The only parts of your Bible that are not inspired are if you have a commentary uh, or the chapter and verse numbers. Those weren't added to the 1500s. Uh, and then your, your dictionary in the back and the maps. Those are, not the only, those are the only parts that are not inspired. Any kind of words in it, we believe, are divinely inspired. We believe that God had a hand in that, right? That he used human hands to write his word. The Holy Spirit inspired authors of, of Scripture. But on the other side of that, we also believe that, that God, the Holy Spirit, in, in, you know, illuminates Scripture whenever we read it. That when we read it, it brings it to life. We, we, can, we can read the same passage of Scripture a couple of different times and always pull something brand new out of it because that's the role of the Holy Spirit in our life as we read it. Last Sunday night in Knowing Faith, we talked about the parables of Jesus and we talked about how Jesus talked in parables uh, for a couple of different reasons. One, to kind of to, to make us think deeper on one level, but on the other level, he also spoke in parables to confuse people who weren't really listening, who weren't really trying to hear what he was saying. That's why Jesus said over and over, he who has ears, let him hear. Like it draws our attention in. And when we read, the Holy Spirit acts as our ears to hear. Uh, he brings out things, and so we can understand them. I, I listened to a podcast this week with a guy by the name of Jonathan Pennington, Doctor Jonathan Pennington. He has a he's an author, pastor, speaker, whatever. He does all those things, but he has a PhD in Matthew. Just the book of Matthew. <laughs> I thought, how, how in the world do you even uh, focus in that much to get your PhD in Matthew? And they ask him, like, how do you continue to read the same book over and over again and not kind of expect what was going to come next, not, not kind of know where it's going or get bored with your reading. And he said this, I thought it was so good. He said, it's a literary and theological masterpiece. The reason why we're still reading it 2,000 years later, outside of the fact that it's still in the Bible, is that it's a great piece of literature. And with great literature, you reread it. And I thought, man, that's it. 
When we read scripture, we read it and we go, man, that was really good. We should continue to reread it because in itself it is a theological masterpiece. And when we read books like uh, James and we read it kind of over and over again, we may hit parts that seem kind of somewhat familiar to us, but don't lose the power of, of even the familiarity don't lose the fact that you, that you kind of feel where James is going next. And so the big picture of all of this in, in any really series that I preach is that I want you to fall in love with Scripture as a whole, to see it fresh and new and relevant and connective. And when we read verses like we're going to read uh, this morning, this verses that you probably read a couple of times before, maybe even a handful of times before. And I know you're probably thinking, well, where's he going with this whole long introduction? Uh, because... What happens most of the time in our lives is when we get toward the end of our life, I hear two things. As a pastor, I get, I get to be involved in a lot of uh, end-of-life conversations. And I hear things like this. I hear, I wish I spent more time with my family, and I wish I spent more time studying the Bible. And I get it. Like, I'm on my end as the pastor, I'm going to get that Bible statement. Most people, if you had conversations, they probably wouldn't say that. But on my end, I get it. I remember even thinking that once I became a pastor, I would have all the time in the world to study Scripture. <laughs> yeah, right. Like, we just, it just feels like there's always something else to do. And, and, and we have all this stuff that kind of piles up on us. And the reality of death and dying kind of brings along the harsh reality of our lives on earth are temporary and we have to make what's most important, most important. Our bodies are not made to live forever. Accidents happen, sickness comes, and because of the result of the original sin in Genesis chapter 3, death has entered the equation. What's interesting is that James, this morning, takes a philosophical approach to this topic. And he reminds us of some real spiritual realities. James chapter 4, verse 13. If you've got your Bible, it says this. It should be on the screen. Now listen. You who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, and carry on business and make money. Why? You don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Like I said, you've probably read this a few different times, but what James does so beautifully here is he makes us think beyond the immediate and consider bigger issues. Now, here's what we do on our side of, uh, of the coin. We, we like to imagine all things that are happening in Scripture as kind of happening in their own independent bubble. We've probably, and you may have even used this term before, Bible times, right? I hate that term because there's no such thing as Bible times, okay? Here, here's to give us a little bit of, um, uh, of kind of a, a, a clear head on this. Um, Socrates, right? If you watch Bill and Ted, it's Socrates. Socrates, who, uh, who understood, if y'all don't get that reference, it's okay. Um, he talked about discussion, argument, and dialogue are used to discern truth. That's his major philosophical impact. Plato, who believed the soul had three functions, reason, emotion, and desire. And Aristotle, who, by the way, was Alexander the Great's tutor, Aristotle studied science and government and physics and politics, and he pioneered the field of formal logic. All these guys lived and taught and died 400 years before Jesus was born. And sometimes we don't put that together. We think, oh, well, there's Bible times, and then there's Greek history, or, or maybe there's Bible signs, and 
We think about uh, things that happened around that time. Think about the Acropolis and the Areopolis and the Parthenon. These places had already been built and established and were, were being used before Jesus was born. Uh, Julius Caesar had been assassinated. Buddha and Confucius both had already been born, had all done all their teaching, and had died uh, 480 years before Jesus was born. The Great Wall of China was being built in 200 BC. That's 200 years before Jesus walked the earth. And, and all these things, uh, kind of, we, we kind of disconnect Bible times and, and, and all these other things. But really, philosophical questions had been asked for a long time. Guys like these, these, these Greek thinkers who sit around literally and just thought. That's how, that was their job all day. is just sit around and articulate what they're thinking about. They had been doing this for a very, very long time. But they all came from the idea of either reason or emotion or experience. And then James comes with a very deep philosophical question but puts a spiritual twist on it. And he asks, what is your life? What, what is your life? And I believe on every level we almost need to answer this today. We, we probably have some pat answers to that. Well, my life is my family, right? My kids or my spouse or my, even my extended family. We're getting into the holiday seasons. We've got to start hanging out with our weird Uncle Earls again. And, and all those things. Well, my, wife, my life is my family. Or my life is my job. It's my occupation. It's, I'm, a, I'm a logger or I'm a small business owner or I'm a banker or I'm a, you know, whatever it is that you, I'm a pharmacist, whatever. My life is my job. Maybe even my life is my free time, right? It's hunting season. Uh, it's, it's, it, this is, I'll just tell you guys this. I got in on the greatest. If you, if you ever want to know how to have the greatest hunt of your life, you do this. Go uh, on Youth Hunt Weekend with two of your boys um, and then take both grandpas. And one went with one, and the other went with the other. Uh, I literally drove them to the stand, and I, went, I found a spot in the woods. I stretched out my hammock, and I laid in the hammock and read a book all day. It was the best hunting experience of my life, right? It was so fantastic, right? Sometimes we say, well, our hunting or our fishing or our shopping or our decorating, whatever it is that you do, our free time is our travel, whatever. That's my life. And if, if because we're in church on Sunday morning, we're all good Christians, we'll even add our faith to that, right? My faith, what I believe, what I hold dear, what I value most, that's my life. Let me just take a second because if we were to look over that list, family, job, free time, and even faith, I think sometimes three of the four of those fall into categories of love and one falls into category of duty. Right? We love our family. Hopefully you love your job. Hopefully uh, you love your free time activities, but you do your faith. Right, you go to church, you uh, read your Bible, you got saved, check mark, check mark, check mark. And if you hear nothing from today, move faith from duty to love. Right? Move faith from something that you do to something that you love. Like love uh, kind of initiates this idea of uh, I want to move this from my mind to my heart, from, from my intellect to my desire, and from my head knowledge to this soul filling aspect of who I am. It's, it's not just something that you do, it's something that you love. Now, when we kind of go back to our discussion about life, I'd, I'd be willing to bet that most of us would say that it's a little bit of a combination of all, what is my life? What's well, my family? It is my job. It is my faith. It is my you know, free time. It's a little bit of all those things that make me, me uniquely. 
But the deep, deeper question to all of that, I think, is what happens if all that stuff gets taken away? Then, then what is your life? And I'm not in Job, and so I'm not going to preach through Job, but you guys know the story with Job. All those things that kind of defined who Job was were, were taken away except for his faith. All the physical and tangible and kind of things that we like to say define us. If they all go, then what's, what's really left? Keep a bulletin maybe in James and flip over uh, to Colossians chapter 3. Let's look at this together. Colossians chapter 3. Uh, it's Paul's letter, and it has this really great um, piece of, of, of Scripture in it. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1 through 4. It should be on the screen. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. So Paul was saying, if, if you're really saved, if you're really raised with Christ, now, now raise your hearts right? Set your, set your hearts on things above. And when you think about your wants and your desires, not your Christmas list, wants and desires, but when you think about what do you want to get out of life? What do you want your life to look like? Or what do you want it to reflect? Think heavenly, is what Paul's telling us. Think above this temporal fading life. And I, and I like the way that Paul doubles down here. We we talked a little bit about it earlier. He connects this heart and mind and says, focus both of those things on Christ. Right? Put them all heavenly. And he, he wraps this in this incredible statement, verse 3. For if you died, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. All that, all that stuff that we say defines our life. See, we died to all that. And now our life is hidden with Christ in God. The language here is similar to treasure language. Right? Our lives are hidden. That, that word means to be concealed in a safe place. One commentary I read said, Our eternal life is an invaluable jewel or treasure which is laid up with Christ in heaven. Our life, our real life, what defines us, what makes us who we are, is no longer tangible, fading, temporary stuff. Our life is with Him. He's the treasure. He's the prize. He's the focus. And Paul takes it a step further in verse 4. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. And I go, that's it, right? Christ, who is your life. This answers James' question of what is your life. And Paul says, well, it's Christ, right? That's what it is. Your whole life is not all that other stuff. and Not that all that other stuff is bad. It's just not Christ. It's not him. He is our life. Acts chapter 17, verse 28. For in him we live and move and have our being. John, 1 John 5. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life and that this life is in his son. He is who has the son. He who has the son has life. Who does not have the son does not have life. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He is life. He is our life. And on one level, I know you're thinking, well, wow, you, you connected a, a question that James asked with an answer that Paul gave, right? How, how do we connect the two of those? But here's what you need to know, and this is so great. We haven't even talked about this in all that we've discussed about James. 
Most scholars place Paul's writings in, in the range of anywhere between 52 and 67. Okay, you're 52 and 67. James, James wrote as early as 40. Just maybe six to seven years after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, James wrote. Some say that James is the first surviving document of the church, which means this. This is incredible. We've talked about James's history and about how when Jesus was alive, that he didn't believe in his brother. He grew up with him. He, he, he kind of made fun of him. He, he, he was completely unbelieving until after the resurrection when Jesus appeared to James, 1 Corinthians. If this is the case, then James... James broke the 400 years of silence from Malachi in the Old Testament, the last prophetic writing of God, to James in the New Testament. James wrote first. He wrote before Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He wrote before Paul and and Peter. James wrote. And he says, listen, let me tell you something. To the 12 tribes scattered. James, a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, it's, it's quite possible, I can't say this for sure, I wasn't there. It's quite possible that James' letter was so circulated that by the time Paul wrote the church in Colossae, he was answering James's question. What is your life? And Paul goes, your life is in Christ. You're Christ. Who is your life? This is so incredible to think that someone who was so unbelieving got to be the person who broke the silence of God. Who comes along and says, no, let me tell you about my brother. Let me tell you about my Lord. And let me tell you about my Savior. James gets to put his mark on something that I believe Paul later answers. And I'm That's the reason why church, it's not just James. It's not just 1 Corinthians. It's not just Philippians. Read your Bible as a whole. Read it as one continually unfolding story of God. And when you read things like that, you step back and go, this is incredible. Like James asks this very physical, I'm going to say that right in a minute. (laughs) He asks this question. I'm not going to be able to get it out now. And, and then later, I believe, Paul comes back and answers it. What is your life? And Paul says, Christ, who is your life? When he appears, you're going to appear with him in glory. This is, this is an incredible balance within Scripture that, that when you just read one book at a time, you miss. But when you see it all put together, it's incredible. What James is trying to get us to understand on a very deep level is that we make these plans, Right? I'm going to go here, I'm going to do this, I'm going to, I'm going to work here, I'm going to do that. And we live our lives focused on the temporary loves that we think define us. And James says, you don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow. All right, what is your life? 
You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. You're here and then you're gone. There's got to be more than just this. Because if this is all there is, then, then what's the point? Keep reading back in James chapter 4. He says this, verse 15. Indeed, you ought to say, if it's the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. And I, even I read that and I kind of push back from it because it feels like we're over-spiritualizing everything, right? But is he? If our life is in Christ, if he is life itself, would we not want to seek his will and his direction and his desire for our life? That's exactly what James is saying. Too often, I believe, that we roll through life making decision after decision and never connect God's will with our actions. Let me ask it like this. When's the last time you prayed for a month over something? Not, not a general, like, cover your bases, you know, God, watch over my family, keep them safe, uh, make my husband not an idiot kind of prayer. But like a real, like intentional, God, I don't know what's going on here, and I'm going to give this to you, and I'm going to give it to you again and again and again and again and again. God, I don't, I don't know what's next. Maybe I don't know what to do next. And so I'm going to seek your direction again and again and again, and I'm not moving until I hear your answer. I'm not going to go until I feel like I know what you want for me for a month. And it hit me, there's four reasons why we don't do this. Number one, it's because we're not in close relationship with God. We're not. And so we don't have that feel like, that, that intimacy of, of communication with him. Number two, we don't really care about his opinion, which proves that we're not in close relationship with God. So that could probably be one and two, but we'll, we'll, we'll separate them. Number three, we, we know that what we're asking, I'm going to use an old word here, is profane. It's against what we know God would want for us. And sometimes we ask him for it anyway. We know, we know the answer that we would get, so we just don't ask him. Or number four, which I think is more often than not, we don't want to wait for his answer. Right? We don't have the patience to wait. We want what we want, when we want it, and how we want it. And so I'm not going to wait and, and hear from God. I'm just going to do whatever I want to do. And hear me, all four of those are selfishly motivated excuses. We're not seeking his will because we don't want to surrender to his will. Look at verse 16. James even tells us, As it is, you boast and brag, all such boasting is evil. James is trying to tell us, if our life is in him, then wouldn't we seek him for everything? Because if we're bragging about how incredible our life is, and we're bragging about our decisions and our will and our wants, then James says it's evil. That word boasting literally means an impetuous and empty presumption which trusts in the stability of earthly things. That's incredible. When our trust is in those tangible things, our boasting, our plans, our wants, our desires, as if our own wisdom, we can figure things out on our own. That's boasting, and James says that's evil. I'm not going to seek him out. I'm not going to look for his opinion because I can do it myself. There's nothing wrong with making plans. Hear me. 
There's nothing wrong with assuming your future and what, you know, we, we talk about what's five years from now look like, what's 10 years from now look like. There's nothing wrong with, with those things. But when we do all those things without seeking his will, then we don't really understand what life is about. We're making our own path instead of seeking his. You know who else did that in scripture? Solomon. If you know, if you know your Old Testament, you know that Solomon was... Uh, was, was basically granted whatever he wanted. God came to Solomon and said, whatever you want, ask for it and it'll be yours. It's almost like this, you know, like genie in a bottle type question. And most of us would go, we want three more wishes, right? Uh, we'd always ask for more things. And Solomon says, I want wisdom to lead your people well. And God, I believe, honored that. He said, listen, because you asked for such a, such a good thing, you're going to get that and you're going to get everything else that you could have asked for as well. So Solomon had wealth and he had, uh, he had peace as a king. He had wisdom beyond anything else and he had, he had availability to do whatever he wanted to do. That, that sometimes equated an excess in his life, right? He, he even wrote in Ecclesiastes that he, he sought out money and wisdom and popularity and women and fortune and, and, and all these things. And at the end of all of it, you know what he said? It's meaningless. It's chasing after the wind. If you have a King James Version, it says it's vanity. Because Solomon knew that our lives and our own wisdom, absent of God's direction, are meaningless. James would say it like this. Our lives and our own wisdom, absent of God's direction, are a mist that vanishes. Look how he wraps this up and we'll begin to conclude. Verse 17. James says, Anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it sins. I'm just real, this is a weird verse in a weird spot. I mean, I mean, it's good, like don't get me wrong, but its placement is, is odd. We've been talking about life and surrendering to God's will and focuses and desires of our hearts. And then James hits us with anyone who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it sins. And it feels out of place. I mean, there's a broad stroke application to that that we can all obviously understand. We understand that when we make decisions and run away from the good that we are supposed to do and we run into evil, that we are there, you know, waiting, uh, you know, there's waiting sin for us, right? We understand that. We, that was even last week's message, friendship with the world is hatred towards God, right? We, we read those verses last week. And so when you read this, it, it feels like it doesn't fit. We've got all this stuff about life and and vapors and mists, and then anyone who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it sins. But this is why Scripture's so good. Remember, he started with this deep philosophical question, what is your life? And he's ending with just as deep of a statement. He's challenged us to stay away from bragging about earthly things and says, anyone who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it sins. In other words, God doesn't need our wisdom. He also doesn't need our ignorance. He has no use for it. Hear me with all the love in the world. You can't fool God. 
You know that your life is a mist. You know that he is the source of wisdom and strength. And you know that your life should be reflective of your love for him. And more than that, he knows you know it. And so in James' perfect way, he rounds out this thought and says, quit playing dumb. Quit playing dumb. What is your life? You know Christ is your life. But you act like you don't. Quit playing dumb. Quit, quit knowing and then not doing. Because claiming ignorance is not an excuse. Over and over again, we can come to God with weak excuses. We come with weak arguments about how and why and what we got ourselves into. And we come and play at responsibility knowing full well that we've been disobedient, knowing full well that we've wandered from his will, knowing full well that a lack of our own personal surrender has caused hurt, not just for us, but for maybe our family and ultimately for God. Quit playing dumb, James says. Our life is too short for that. They're a mist. They're they're a vapor. And, And if you say that you're a believer, then your life is in him live like it this is the continual theme of james over and over and over again quit playing at this and live it and through this deep question of what is your life he's assuming you already know the answer to that what is your life i know but i'm not going to say that because it's hard well you're playing dumb and quit playing dumb I love that James doesn't pull any punches. I love that James just punches us right in the mouth and says, deal with this now. And so church, that's what we're going to do. TJ's going to come, Miss Ruth's going to play, and we're going to deal with this now. I believe wholeheartedly that you guys are, I, I know you. You're good, you're good, good people. But I also know a lot of us are just plain dumb. Like we don't know that we should be doing things that we should be doing. We don't know that we should be seeking God's direction and surrendering to his will for our life. Like we don't know all the things that we know. And God goes, guess what? I know you know. Quit playing dumb. Your life is in him. Live like it. Quit making excuses. Quit coming with these shallow um, um, I'm sorry's. And really live surrendered life to him. So, as James would adequately say, let's deal with it. Would you stand with me and pray as TJ comes? We're going to sing a hymn of invitation. If you need to come and you need to deal with some ignorant playing that you've been doing, then let's deal with it. If you just need to come and pray at the altar and ask God to forgive you for acting like you don't know the right thing, then come and pray. You need to grab somebody or if you need to talk about what it means to be saved or what it means to join a church or why baptism is important this is your opportunity most of us know but we're playing dumb and James tells us quit playing dumb you know the good you ought to do and when we don't do it we're, sin- we're deliberately walking into sin we got to stop playing these games let's pray together father we love you and we thank you for today thank you for the truth of your word and thank you for james and how he uh, bluntly puts things that are in our face and makes us deal with stuff because this is how our life is supposed to be lived out in complete vulnerability and transparency before you and so god today we come and we say we're sorry we're sorry for playing at 
church and playing at religion and playing at faith. We're sorry for knowing what we're supposed to do and claiming our own personal wisdom and not leaning into what you have for us. And we're just, we're just playing a game. And so, Father, we, we come confessing and acknowledging that truth and asking for you to forgive us. Simple. On every level, it's simple, but our pride keeps it hard. And so, Father, help us today as we, as we break down some of those walls. Help us to, uh, to adequately respond to what you're saying. Father, if there's somebody who needs to come and talk to me, I'm here. I'm available. If they just need to come and pray, God, I pray that they would have the boldness just to step out and say, I'm not playing games with this anymore. I'm coming broken before the Lord. God, we love you and we thank you for this moment. Let's not miss this. This is the most important. God, change us. It's in this moment. We ask these things in Jesus' name.